What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another edition of Elevate Your Grind brought to you by the Cannabis Lab. I am your host, Todd Rosales, and it is lovely to be back here in studio. And by studio, I mean my home office. Uh, we did a couple episodes on site. I think you're going to really like trying to do more of those. But of course, based on our geography, there's only so many people I can get to in the state of Florida or when I travel. So this is going to be de facto standard for now until we have a travel budget and we can fly people down and put them up in a lovely hotel. Um, we have, let's see, this month, when's this coming out? Probably going to come out after this month's C-Lab event. So join us the third Thursday in August uh, in Orlando, Tampa, Broward, and Miami. I think the Broward event's actually going to move up to Palm Beach County. That's going to be at American Social in Meisner Park. So if anybody wants to check it out, uh, it's going to be the first time we're up in Palm Beach County in a long time. So definitely come to that one. You can find that at joincelab.com. Of course, if you want to watch any of our other interviews, our entire library of over 225 episodes can be found on YouTube at youtube.com slash elevate your grind, or the audio versions can be found on Apple and Spotify and the rest of the podcast platforms, but nobody really uses those. So we're just going to talk about Apple and Spotify. All right. Um, my guest today is someone that I, I don't know. I've never met, but I see his content on LinkedIn all the time. Somehow it started hitting my feed and then it started hitting my feed more and more and more and more and more and more and more. And now he's like one of six people that I see all the time. You may not recognize him because I think he just shaved off his iconic beard, but please welcome the CEO at Left Coast Holdings, Willie McKenzie. Willie, thanks for joining me, man. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm still getting looked to the, used to the look myself. It's been a, a decade with that beard, so my face feels very short and squat. <laughs> Dude, I, I it's funny because you know I do my research and every every picture I've seen of you, every article, every video, it's the beard. Then all of a sudden you come on the show, people are going to think I found an imposter. I know. My wife said something like that. She's like, "It's kind of like your your thing." You know, people are going to recognize you. I'm like, I don't know. I got to try it once, you know, that's the problem. Like, I don't let my beard get too long because then I feel like I'm committed to it for an extended period of time. Yeah, it's definitely a commitment. <laughs> that's I've awesome. been in it for a minute. Well, outside of uh, facial hair advice, I think there's a lot of things that we can learn from you. And I think your story is really cool. You know, I, I've learned I've learned as much as I can through essentially just seeing you on LinkedIn posts. And there's another person that I met that way, Brett Puffenbarger, who I'm now colleagues with, and we became close. So I don't feel like it's a bad way to meet people. And I would definitely come up and say hi, if I ever saw you in person, although now I wouldn't recognize or know who you are. But, you know, I want to I want to learn more about you. So, you know, let's start with what you're doing now. You're the CEO at Left Coast Holdings, you are up in Michigan, tell us a little bit about the organization, how many stores you have, you know, tell us what you're doing today. Sure. Um, so yeah, we're, we're based in Michigan. Um, we have a large outdoor farm. We grow 45,000 plants out, 46,000 plants outdoors. We have a 300 light indoor facility. We do manufacturing and processing. We, we do our own. We have a couple in-house brands and then we do brands for other people. And then we also have three retail stores right now. And it started off pretty small. <clears throat> My partner and I moved here from California. We came out in 2019 um, because he owned a, a bowling alley in this town. And we could get huh. people to stand in line for a retail license for us, the bowling alley employees. And, uh, you know, once we once we had a store and the farm stood up, uh, it all kind of snowballed from there into what it is today. 
That's cool, man. I, I was curious to know how you got to Michigan, because as I read into your background, from what I understand, you're a legacy California cultivator being up in Northern California. Tell me, you know, a little bit more background about you. At what point in your life did you start getting into cultivating cannabis? Was it something that's always really been part of your life or did you discover it later on? Yeah, so um, I got involved in cannabis in high school. I started, you know, I started selling weed at school, uh, buying ounces, bagging them up, carrying a little Altoid case and basically selling to smoke for free. And that grew into me selling in college at a larger scale. And then when I got out of college, when I flunked out of college, um, I started growing in my garage. This was like 2006. I put a single light in my garage. Um, and it was there until my girlfriend's dad paroled out of prison and had to move into my garage. So we had to take that one down, but, uh, we, we eventually moved and upgraded. And so I ran a 12 light setup in the Oakland Hills for a number of years and did pretty well with that and really was into growing. And in 2014, we, we did our first outdoor season. Uh, I bought a piece of land and we put up the infrastructure and, that was, uh, yeah, that was my first outdoor season and where I really fell in love with growing outdoors. So that's really cool, man. It's funny. I talked to any cultivators I talk to, they either have that transition where they started outdoor because they were learning with somebody else and then they went off on their own. As I heard, you know, go down the hill and, and go into the city and set up in a garage like you did or, you know, yourself who started in a garage and then went the other way because maybe going into the rec or the legal market at that point going outdoors. How is that transition between the two growing mediums? I know sometimes it's a holy argument of which which cannabis is better, whether it's the the controlled environment of indoor or the natural environment of outdoor. You know, is there a learning curve changing the way that you cultivate, you know, with completely different environments there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, based on where you grow up in California is what you're going to do, right? If you live off in the rural area, if you live in the hills, you're going to grow in the hills. Like a lot of the guys who I'm friends with, they started growing in high school in the hills, you know, just like out on public land, um, you know, in little hidden spots. I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up uh, right next to Berkeley. So that was kind of, you know, we, we didn't have that opportunity. We had to grow inside. And the transition from indoor to outdoor. I was fortunate. My cousin, my cousin was my, my growing partner and he had made the jump up to Humboldt a number of years ahead of me. Um, I had a period in there actually where I got heavily addicted to opiates. And so I stepped back from my involvement in cannabis when I got sober and he kept going. And so when I was ready to jump back in, he had some really solid outdoor experience already. And so Sure. Our first outdoor season was was successful. So big reason why I wanted to talk to you is that addiction issue. So one of the things, you know, people love a comeback story. And one of the biggest things that I try to use this platform for this podcast for is to show people, A, everyone deserves second chances, especially if they can turn their life around, sometimes third, fourth and fifth, right? Not every, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say everybody does. There are some giant pieces of shit out there, but, you know, they're probably in the extreme minority. Um and then also the fact that people who consume weed are lazy and, you know, unmotivated and don't want to do anything yet. There's an entire billion dollar organization around people who love weed and, you know, 
it's part of their life. And someone like you, who is now a successful entrepreneur, and again, I don't know your finances or anything else, but the fact that you have the facilities that you have, that you have the businesses you have, that you have employees and everything else. And to me, that is success, especially coming from where you came from. So tell me a little bit about, you know, when you were a child growing up, like, what were your, your, your hopes and dreams? What did you think you wanted to do? Or, or, you know, like most of us, were you just kind of going through life trying to figure it out and then just cannabis found its way. And, you know, cause that's one of the things I talked about people who are almost lifelong cultivators is, was there ever a, I've got to get out of this and I'm going to go be a fireman or I'm going to go be a, a this or a that, like was cannabis always kind of the career path for you, even if it meant having to stay in the black market forever, or were there other hopes and dreams, or did that kind of go out the window with addiction? Yeah, so <clears throat> I've also always been involved in the construction industry, and like when I got out of rehab, I went to work for a contractor, and I helped them build a business, and I eventually made myself invaluable to that business to where I started getting offers from other people and they had to make me a partner. Um, and so that kind of, that, that was how I got myself back into an ownership position because when I came out of rehab, I had nothing. I had two black trash bags with all my stuff in it. I, I lived in a halfway house. I took the fucking AC transit bus to work. Uh, you know, these guys had to buy me a cell phone. And so, you know, the last, 10 years of my life has been a pretty steep uh, ascent to where I am today. Um, but to get back to the cannabis piece of it, I, I am, I, I, I grew up poor basically, you know, like I got fucked with for not having money. We shopped at the thrift store. I didn't have cool clothes. I got teased at school and <clears throat> excuse me. My allergies are bad. You're good. Um, and so from a very young age, it, I have this drive, like I'm, I am going to be rich when I get older. Like I want to be able to have anything I want. I don't ever want to have to tell my family that I can't afford something. And so although I would have, you know, a business going, I always had a side hustle and cannabis was always the side hustle. And once, once, you know, prop 215 came around and, and eventually prop 64, like it became apparent that the side hustle could be the real deal. Right. So it started off as a side hustle. And, you know, in 2014, I bought a piece of property over the next couple of years, I would buy three more properties. And so at a certain point we had four farms. Um, and I thought that I was really set up and unfortunately I couldn't take those farms into the regulated market, into the rec market, um, which was a big setback for me. We lost a lot of money that year. And it's basically the reason that I wound up in Michigan. Um, because I needed to to get into the rec market. I had so much experience um, in cannabis. It, it just felt like a huge waste for me not to pursue it. So I, I made the, the trek to Michigan. It's crazy to me because we always love these stories of, of hearing everything that you said, you know, growing up poor, shopping in thrift shops, getting fucked with, you know, going through through addiction and rehab and everything else, as long as it has... I don't want to say a happy ending because you're so far away from your ending, but at least you're in, you know, you've definitely changed your stars. If, if anybody remembers the the movie, a Knight's tale, right. You've definitely changed your stars and you know, it kind of sucks because we romanticize it and we love hearing these stories, but I'm sure it was not fun while you were going through it whatsoever. And the reason that we can romanticize it 
is because of where you've you've been able to take yourself to. But if you don't mind sharing, like how and and, and again, you know, I think it, it's up to you. If you don't want to, that's fine. You know, talk to us about your addiction, how that happened to you, and then you know because. And I think Joe Rogan talks about this a lot. You know, it's it's like the thing that almost ruins your life is also probably something that is also making you uh, successful, right? The obsession, the addiction to the work now. And, you know, my wife was an addiction counselor, and I'll probably butcher this because I never went through it. But, you know, sometimes it's finding a healthier addiction. You see a lot of people who come out of rehab and they get into phenomenal shape and they're addicted to health, right? You know, a lot of there are a lot of really bright people. That was the one thing that she opened my eyes to is it wasn't all just like scumbags and dirtbags. Like there are some in there, but there are a lot of people that are they just have like an obsessive personality or they have that addictive personality. And if you can addict them to the right thing, it could be very, very powerful, right? And I think there are a lot of people, shockingly enough, that have been in your situation where they're able to switch what their addiction is and make their life exponentially better. So I, if you're willing to, can you share kind of going into addiction, going through rehab and how you were able to like recognize those traits about yourself and turn them on to something more positive? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I'm I'm pretty much an open book about it. Um, I'm happy to discuss it with you and whoever any, anybody else that wants to talk about it. So if I think so back to my childhood here by telling your story, <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, so like, if I think back to my childhood, I was always kind of off, you know, like you talk about that obsessive personality. I do have that obsessive personality and I have managed to channel it into healthy things these days, but you know, I can get addicted to anything. Um, you know, eating beef jerky and pistachios together or protein bars, working out at the gym, fishing, hunting, like anything I pick up, I get addicted to really easily. And so when I was younger <clears throat> and, you know, like 13, 14 years old, I had always felt off. And the first time I tried weed and the first time I tried drinking, it felt like I had found the answer. Like I felt normal. I felt like I was a part of the group. I felt cool. It, nothing else mattered. And so I, I had the answer. And so I became a party guy, right? I was always drinking, always smoking. And as life progressed and we got older and more drugs came into the picture, um, you know, I got into Coke and then I did eventually get into pills and the pills are really what took me down and they took me down fast. And to a degree, I'm grateful for that because I was a hard partying dude. And if I hadn't gotten into pills and had them really destroy my life, I would have been, you know, 45 years old with a drinking problem, getting DUIs. My wife would be divorcing me. Like I foresee. So you would have went into finance. Happening. Got it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. Right. I would have been <laughs> on wall street. So I feel fortunate um, actually that it happened to me. And, and you're absolutely right. Like Joe Rogan says, like, I am the man that I am today because I went through that. I mean, I spent six months in a residential treatment facility, long-term treatment, because I was a really bad drug addict. And that six months that I spent there, completely disconnected from the world, no phone, no contact with the outside, no news, no bills, no stress, like 100% focused on myself and my personal growth. And I grew while I was there leaps and bounds. And when I came out, I was ready to do something, you know, and, and I was ready to make big changes in my life. Let me ask you a silly question, right? You know, for those people who never go through addiction or never 
maybe they never get to the point where they truly have a problem because it's not negatively impacting their lives, but they are, you know, maybe they're drinking a safe amount. They're getting rides home. They're very conscious of that. Maybe, you know, but they use it as like an escape or a distraction or even maybe some kind of other drugs or pills or anything else, or just people who are normal, right? You know, that don't do anything, but they're just, they're always dealing with the stress. Do you think part of the power of what you did was the fact that you were able to kind of disconnect yourself from the world? Now, obviously you had more that you needed to work on, but you think the average person could have any kind of benefit from just a break and, and like, don't get me wrong. I have a wife and kids too. And if I ever told my wife, like, Hey, I need to just disappear for three weeks, four weeks, what it is to work on myself. She'd probably be like, yeah, go fuck yourself. We've got kids that need to be taken care of. Right. But you know, do you think that just because as human beings and certainly as Americans, once we graduate college, or you get into your career, you never really take your foot off the gas that we could all benefit from taking that break. I don't want to say from life because that sounds morbid, but break from everyday life and kind of just figuring out who you are, what you like, what you want to do and what you're good at would be beneficial for most people, like just beyond people of addictions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've written a LinkedIn post about it before. I think that everybody could benefit from from essentially going to rehab um, like at its core, you are removing yourself from society. Right. And like today we are so on all the time. We're 24 seven available. We are constantly fed external stimulation from TV, phones, social media. It's like nonstop. Right. And so it, the the simplicity of removing yourself from that is really healing. And I think that everybody would benefit from doing it. And, you know, there's stuff, there are retreats that people go on to do just that, but it's like, you know, it's a week, right? I mean, yeah. I spent half a year completely removed. Um, and, and that's a bit extreme. I don't think that normal people in their everyday life can do that. But, you know, if you have an opportunity to go unplug, even if it's just for a couple of days, like, hugely beneficial yeah dude i mean i can't tell you how much i would love just to be able to unplug from my phone there now there are certain times where i've physically like when i'm done working for the day i i try to for the most part put my phone on the kitchen counter and i like plug it in to charge it to make me feel like i'm leaving it there for a reason and try to walk away from it i try not to have it at the dinner table when i'm with my family and try not to have it when i'm putting my kids to sleep so from like 5 30 ish to like 7 30 i try to stay away from my phone and i'll be honest like it's self-imposed and i'm not always successful at it but just that little feeling like not having it at the dinner table it's a completely different experience um and i don't think many people do that and i'll be honest i'm one of those people who struggle with that yeah i mean i do the same thing and it's because i my son is 17 months old i have an obsessive personality i have two businesses that I own. I have other projects that I work on. Like I could be completely engrossed in my phone or my laptop all day, yeah. you know? And I want to make sure that I am always like, I'm home for a couple hours in the evening with my son. I make a point that I get home in time for uh, bath time and bedtime. And like, if I'm going to be on my phone, uh, you know, and not present with my son during that period, that, that's I'm cheating him and I'm cheating myself. So I do the same thing. It's funny, man. And it's just a little bit of a tangent, you know, people without kids, they don't understand it. Right. Because, you know, it, it, like you said, you want to get home for bath time and bedtime. And those are two things that I like to get home for as well, too. I'm lucky enough that I work out of my house. So I am around for most of the day. 
but you know, when I'm doing stuff out of the house, like we did an interview uh, down in Homestead on Sunday and I told someone, it's like, yeah, I want to be back by seven. Well, why? Well, I want to put the kids to bed. Oh, is your wife making you come home? Like there's no one who can help her. I'm like, my response was no, I want to be home for that. Like I, I want to be there for that. I always want to be there for that as much as I can because there are going to be plenty of nights that I can't that there's nothing I can do about it. So if I can do something about it, then I absolutely want to be there for bedtime. And, you know, it, it's funny because even when we're there, we make the effort to be there, but then sometimes we're not there, like you just said. And I think it takes that effort to be present. And I think, you know, I think that's another thing that really helps you. It's weird that you have all these milestones in life that kind of help you prioritize. And it's it sucks they happen later in life, like having kids and having a family and realizing that there's more to life than just your own needs, right? And that your actions affect the people around you. And I want to get more into that in a second too. But, you know, it, it's funny, like when you're young and you're single, or if you just stay single and you're only focused on yourself, like you don't have that milestone and you just don't understand with other people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, and I waited until I was 38 to have a kid. I was very conscious of achieving a certain level of success um, because of my upbringing. I wanted to have certain things that I was able to offer my son and a level of stability. Although I'm an entrepreneur, I, I'll, I don't know that I'll ever have like that real level of stability. If I don't produce, I don't get paid. But um, I got to a point where I was comfortable doing it. And we moved to Michigan and I felt like this was a place where I was, I would be okay bringing up a child. Like I didn't want to have a kid in the Bay area in California. Um, let me, let me, let me ask a more obvious question here. Now that you've gone through rehab and you, you know, have you really found yourself, are you still able to use cannabis? No, I don't use it. I've tried it twice. Um, once unsuccessfully, I had a panic attack. So part of, uh, you know, part of what, what led me into addiction was I have like horrible anxiety um, and panic attacks. And so, you know, drinking and taking drugs, you don't have any anxiety when you're like that. And when you stop taking drugs and you stop drinking, the anxiety comes back. And so I've done a lot of work to try to rid myself of that or cope with it or minimize it. Um, but I, I smoked a joint maybe four years ago or took a couple hits and had a horrible panic attack. So um, I did, we produce wink beverages, the, the low dose seltzers uh -huh. at our facility. And I did have a two and a half milligram, um, wink seltzer before the REO Speedwagon concert at the local Indian casino, um, a couple months ago, I would like to be able to leverage it because I have a lot of stress in my life, right? Um, the cannabis industry is incredibly stressful. Oh yeah. And from a stress relief standpoint, I think it would be really beneficial for me. Now, as an addict, I run the risk of getting back to what I used to be, which is like roll over in bed in the morning and grab the half blunt that was there from the night before and fire it up before I even get out of bed. Um, that that would be my concern with it. But, um, you know, for medicinal purposes, I am I am trying to figure out what might work for me. So you get out of rehab, you go into construction, which funny, you know, it's weird to me. There's cultivators and construction go very, very hand in hand. And, you know, obviously that has to do with the fact that when you're building out a home grow, there is a lot of construction associated with it, rigging stuff and everything else. So it is a, you know, there is mutual education there. 
what did the people in your life or how did you even feel when it was time to get back into cannabis, knowing your background and, and knowing that you may not be able to actually try your product? Was that, you know, was that a big leap? Did people try to talk you out of it? You know, what was that experience like? Um, you know, people close to me, like my parents definitely asked about it. Um, I wasn't living on the farm, right? I, I was in the Bay Area running my business. I was more like the, you know, the business and financial side of things. Um, you know, the year before we bought the farm, my my cousin was up in Humboldt and they had an issue on their farm. They got kicked off the property. They had to move all their plants, which that happens on outdoor farms. You get raided, you you something happens, you get kicked off your property and you throw all of your plants into fucking U-Haul trailers and then you have to figure out somewhere to go. Mm-hmm. And so I lent him a uh, hundred grand and he paid me back with 50% interest within like, you know, six months. And I was like, oh yeah, that's why I used to do this. <laughs> so we went out and bought a piece of property. Right. Um, and so my parents, yeah, they, you know, they were a little bit hesitant at first, but now it's like, this is my 10th outdoor season. I'm not a, a huge pothead. My wife doesn't like the smell of it. You know, it used to be an issue. We lived on one of our farms for a while, uh, like off grid up in the woods. Um, but yeah, the people around me know that, you know, I'm I'm a businessman. I'm opportunistic. I do love the plant. I, I love seeing it grow. I love what it does for people. I love hearing, uh, you know, people's stories of treating epilepsy and all these amazing uh, effects that it has on people who are sick and you know hopefully it, it's interesting that i'm a guy in the industry and i haven't been able to figure out something that works you know yet for me but one but day i think that's there. powerful man i think that's powerful to show it's powerful to show what cannabis is and how it affects people right where you've you've gone through that and you know who knows if it was the cannabis that was a gateway drug or if it was the alcohol that was a gateway drug for you or even just you know your mental state at the time that was your gateway into getting into pills right like you know one of the things that that i experience is like i do enjoy to smoke in the morning sometimes sometimes even it, i actually enjoy smoking more on non-work days because it allows me to kind of just focus and be present with my kids and like actually be more into the stuff that they're into because like all the noise goes away but having said that like the ability to go and pack a bowl or or a bong or smoke a joint somewhere, like I don't always have the time or the ability to get away to do that. So like you think, oh, and then there's edibles and that's where I can see pills coming in where it's like I can, it's very easy to put a pill in my mouth and swallow it and then feel the effects versus going out and doing the ritual of smoking a joint. So I can see that being the gateway is just like, I need something else that will do this for me because I can't consume it this way. Right. But having said that you've gone through all that, you've gone through the rehab and then you came back to the industry. And now, now you're providing it to other people to the point where you say, I can't do this anymore. It's not for me right now, unfortunately, but I know what it does for other people. So I'm going to make it my business, make it my passion. Cause I remember that and put it out in the world for other people. I think that's just a powerful message of what this plant can do for society in general. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. It's a, it's a powerful plant. You know, it was really, it was hard growing in the Hills, right? We were doing something that wasn't really quite legal. Um, we were up in the Hills. We had to truck everything in, trucking in soil, putting it in 400 gallon smart pots it was incredibly dry. We were in drought years. We had our well would run dry at the end of July, early August. 
and we'd have to truck in water. And so my cousin and I used to dream of like, man, what if we could do this down in the Central Valley one day in an ag field and plant these things directly in the ground and eliminate like all of this work for ourselves. And so for uh, for me now to like walk out onto our farm and see, you know, tens of thousands of plants um, is just, it's wild, right? This is, it is like, it's a dream come true. And so, um, I, I, I pinch myself sometimes because the shit yeah, it came real, right? It's, it, it happened. Dude, it, it's crazy to me. There's something to me, I, you know, and, and I go through this and this goes back to this being more of a conversation. Like I've been in sales and business development and stuff my whole life. Everything I've done, has never really been like a clear cut path. It's how can I convince this person to see value in what I'm doing? How can I create something that's a new revenue stream? How can I make something out of nothing and kind of put together all of these parts, right? To me, there's something romantic about being a farmer. And, you know, obviously there are different challenges every day and it's always going to throw you problems. And, you know, maybe this is me seeing the grasses is greener on the other side. But to me, there's like a clear cut, task you know you wake up in the morning you go to the farm you know what you have to do and then you deal with the variables as well too it's not how am i going to build this online thing that's going to scale to this size and pull in all this revenue well how do you scale up a cannabis grow we build another room you put more plants in it like you know it's you know and there are problems that come with scaling too and growing it on so i'm not saying it's easy but to me there's just something like very romantic about the farm where I just, I get passionate about it. I'm not even doing it. And I get upset that we can't do that down here in Florida because we have 22 licenses and only another 22 are going to be given out. And you needed 150 grand to just apply for the license. And you needed to show proof of funds of like 50 million. So like me, you know, you can tell I got plantation shutters. I'm not, not doing terrible, but <laughs> you know, I definitely don't have 50 million in the bank. I noticed your shutters. I like those. <laughs> It's a Florida thing. Shutters are very important in Florida. We got to keep the heat out, man. Um, yeah, totally. That's awesome, though. So you were able to go to Michigan. And then, you know, how do you, you know, what's the drive? How do you convert from from the, call it, gray market side to going 100% wreck in Michigan? Was there just different, same, same tasks, different challenges? Now the challenge is being more the regulation, the legalities, and the taxes. Like, what was that experience like setting up shop in Michigan? Actually, what was it more experience saying like, hey, we're going to do this now, but we're going to do it the right way, and we're going to move to the middle of the country. We're going to leave California where, where we've been for a while. Were, were you married at that point yet? Yeah, so my wife and I were married. <clears throat> we've been married for two years, um, and she has been – absolutely incredibly supportive we moved every two years since we got together so eight yeah eight years now nine years four moves and always following uh you know business following the plant mostly and so it was a big move for us to get here but you know when we when we came we came here together when covid shut everything down i couldn't fly back and forth anymore and we towed our trailer out and we we parked it on the farm with our dogs for six weeks and we just lived on the farm and it was amazing uh and my wife loved it and she was like dude i could live here you know and it's like don't tell me that shit because we will live here um <laughs> and i called the realtor and put our house on the market and uh and we moved 
in the early days of the farm were my favorite. Like I love the startup environment. What we're doing now, you know, systematizing and processes and, you know, making things really efficient is tough for me. I'm not, I'm like the, I'm like you, you know, before this, I was a VP of sales at a construction company. You know, I, I, I'm out and about every day. I, I love being in the field. And so when we built the farm, you know, I'd spend my mornings on my computer and my trailer working on licensing and shit. And then I'd go out and run an excavator in the afternoon and work on the farm. And, and I love that shit. And so as the business got bigger and I had to step back from being able to do that, you know, I spent three years just in an office being an executive and it's, it's not that fun. Um, certainly not as fun as being on the farm. It's not, yeah. it's not, you know, I guess like, there's some people who are like obsessed with the three letters, like, Oh, I'm the CEO. You know, it's like, uh, it's whatever. I don't care. I started this company. Um, I'm not even the smartest guy who works here. I just like, somebody had to do this job. I'm the guy who, who was doing it. Right. There wasn't an option for me not to do it basically. No, um, but man, I miss being on the farm. Dude. The, so many people, you know, I think I've used the word romanticize so much, but they romanticize the being the CEO and they don't realize like, when you're the CEO, it's not you like, yeah, you're the boss, but also you have to deal with everything. Like you have to deal with HR issues. You have to deal with, hey, our payroll company dropped. Get another one. Well, this, that, and the other. It's like, hey, this weird, the, the plumbing went out and, you know, we can't get a plumber. Like it's just weird shit that you have to deal with. And as someone like for me, I like to be able to sit and focus. Like I work from home and a lot, I have to tell my wife, like, just cause I'm here, I'm not here because you coming and asking me to help put the kids in the car. Like that takes me out of my train of thought. That is what life is as a CEO. It's you, it's someone constantly coming to you and taking your, your thoughts away because they need your attention to focus on this issue. That might be a fire, right? Or sometimes it's not a fire, but it's a fire to them. It's just not a fire to the business. And I don't think people realize like, Gary Vee is one of the biggest proponents of the saying, like the CEO works for everybody. Like, yes, at the beginning, you might be the boss to say, here's the direction that we're going to run in. And these are the plans. But once you have that meeting, you tell everyone the plans and you give them their direction at that point, it turns around and you work for them. Like you might still be the boss and say, hey, this person may not be the right person for that seat on the bus, but people are coming to you with issues and it's your job to solve them. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's a, it's a lot of firefighting. Um, you know, you said something that, that I struggle with, which was in the beginning when I, when I stepped into the office, I was the only person in the office. I did everything I did. I paid the bills. I opened the fucking mail. I wrote all the checks by hand. And then as, as the business grew and we professionalized and ADP does the checks and we hired a bookkeeper and we have somebody else who opens the mail but people are constantly coming in and asking me questions. So it's very difficult for me to get like a really good chunk of time to actually work on something. Um, but you know, it is what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a job, you know, is it, is it challenging for you now as someone who, who seems to be growing pretty decently in the Michigan market to be able to do what you do without being able to consume? Or do you just have to go out and find people that know? Like, So I imagine based on your experience that you can look, smell, and feel cannabis and, and understand the quality there. Obviously, the one piece that you can't do is taste, if you will, right? You know, Does that come down to, hey, 
I know this part of it. So I just need someone else who can, you know, consume it. Or is it just at that point you say, you know what, I'm not even going to attempt myself or, or, or put myself in that position. I'm going to just get some people who know cannabis really well, and I'm going to trust them to make sure that we're putting the best product we can into the market. Yeah. So that was actually something that I grappled with, um, in the beginning, like in my, if I'm going to sell something, I have to believe in it a hundred percent. Otherwise I can't sell it. You know, like when I, my, my construction company does homeowners associations. So I would go to board meetings and I would sell a construction job to these people. And I could tell them with a straight face that we're the best construction company to do this job. I have these guys build my parents' house. Like these are the guys I trust. You shouldn't trust anybody else but us. And I believed it. And so then if I'm going to sell weed to people, weed that I don't try, that I can't try, that I, that I won't try, how can I tell people that it's, this is the best weed, that this is what they should smoke? And for me, I have a lot of legacy people around me. We brought legacy growers from California. We have caregivers from Michigan. And so these people know way more about weed than I could ever know. And, you know, they can smell something and tell you like what the genetics are, not just what strain that is, but what is the lineage? Yeah. Like, what are the, what is this, what is the cross and where did it come from? Um, and so when those people tell me that something is good, then I have the confidence to go forth and tell people like, this is, this is real fire. You should, you need to try this, you know, because some real snobs that I know said that this is fire. That's awesome. From real snobs that I know. I feel the exact same way about that stuff, man. And I'm, I do get jealous of those people. I think so. I make this joke, but I think it's true. I think I, I, I got into a fight in college and I think I broke my nose and it never just healed rightly. And I think my sense of smell and taste is not as good. I see so many people that can like dry pull and do that. And it's just something I don't think I'm ever going to be able to do, but it, it's gotta be, you know, to me, that's another incredible challenge and another hurdle that you overcame was being able to put out quality products and having having the ability to put that trust in the people that you brought in to to be able to have that confidence in your product because at the end of the day like it isn't you you are having to rely very heavily on other people to give you that but also you have the confidence that you brought in the right people which is really cool um you know, and I think that's that's one of the things that I like about your story is just resiliency, like seeing a hurdle and figuring out how to get around that. And, you know, as we mentioned earlier, you know, rehab probably was a strong portion of that. What was some of the biggest lessons that you learned? And I imagine one of them is just self-imposed discipline, because I think that's the number one problem that the majority of the world has is self-imposed discipline because, you know, I can wake up and say, I'm going to start working out in the morning, but if I don't ever do, but, but there's no, the only consequence for me not working out in the morning is like, I'm just not going to work out. So like, you know, at one day, it may not seem like a major consequence two days, maybe not. But if I continue to do that and I don't hold myself accountable, I'm never going to get those workouts in. And then there is consequences in the form of my health. Right. And, or saying, Hey, uh, I'm not going to do this today, or I'm going to put my phone over there. Like no one's going to yell at me if I go grab my phone. It's it's my own self-imposed rule that I put on myself, but I'm also letting myself down and I'm not following through on the things that I told myself I was going to do, which is crazy because most of us, if I made a promise to you, right, I would probably feel more obligated to fulfill that promise because you're not me and someone else is going to hold me accountable than if I made a promise to myself 
And I think that is kind of fucked up of everybody that we're more likely to hold promises to others that may not even care about us as much as we care about ourselves or as much as we care about them, but we're not willing to uphold our own promises to ourselves. Man, I love that you said that. It's something that I talk about a lot. Um, I mean, thinking back, I might have stolen that from a LinkedIn post and not giving you credit for it. But you know what? I'm taking credit. It's my show. (laughs) You're good, bro. It's I I don't think it's a new idea, but, you know, like when I started my first company, like we say, we're about integrity where we do we do what we say we're going to do. And so like these external promises that we make to other people, we're going to fucking keep those things. But what about the promises that we make to ourselves? Like, like you're talking about, I'm going to wake up early and go to the gym tomorrow. And then we don't do it. And that's a small loss. You know, you accept it. Okay. Well, it's whatever, uh, you know, I'm going to diet today. And then you go eat fucking McDonald's for lunch. And that's another small loss. And yeah. to me, that, that erodes our self-worth and our self-confidence to the point that we don't have any self-worth and self-confidence. And I have been in that position before and it really hit me. I got some of that at rehab, um, you know, some discipline and some willpower, but um, it hit me when I moved in with my wife and, and one morning, you know, I, I was a sales guy. I didn't have a super strict schedule and she had a corporate job and she had to be there and she was waking up in the morning before me. And I would be like waking up and seeing her, you know, kiss me and head out the door. I'm like, what a fucking bum you are, dude. You're fucking your girl, she was my girlfriend at the time. She's beating you out the door and, and you think that you're going to be the head of this household. And like, you made a promise to yourself that you're going to be successful and never have to tell like this. I was starting to get into a position where I'm like, I'm seeing myself with this woman for the rest of my life. How are you going to tell her that you can support her for the rest of your life? You don't even get up until eight o'clock in the fucking morning. And so I started waking up at 5 a.m. And ever since then, I've been waking up between like 3.45 and 5 a.m., and working out. And the biggest thing that I struggle with is diet. Um, you know, it's really a big challenge for me, especially with the addiction. Like Food's a lot of people fucking delicious. That's the problem. Food is delicious. I mean, not to, to replicate Rogan again, but he's the one thing I love that he says is he goes, food's the hardest addiction to beat because you can't just cut it out. You need it to live. So you need some kind of food. And then all of a sudden, like you could be eating healthy for a week and not to cut you off. But then all of a sudden someone brings your favorite pizza in and you're like, God damn, that looks good. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it's sugar, right? Like I'm a, I've chocolate, you know, fucking get out of here. I will, I don't have an off switch, you know, I'll tear down a whole box of cookies, no problem. And so there's no, like, my wife has finally figured out that there's, it's like very black and white for me. I'm either all the way off or all the way on. There's no, like, I don't have one cookie. She's like, why can't you just have a couple cookies? And I'm like, I can't, I'm going to eat the whole box. That's have how you I tasted do. these cookies? That's why I can't have a couple cookies. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so like for me right now, I'm in a very good place with my internal integrity but it hasn't always been like that. And it's a constant battle, right? You're constantly at war with the the inner piece of yourself that wants to be fucking lazy and sleep in and eat bullshit. Um, you know, it's, you got to conquer your inner bitch, right? Well, that that's the one thing I love seeing about guys like you is, you know, everyone, we look at all these, these motivational speakers and people that are putting that information out there. And it's like, oh, well, I still want to eat cheeseburgers and I still want to do this. It's like, so does fucking everybody. They just have the discipline to know that there are consequences for doing that. I guarantee you every single fitness influencer out there, every single, some of them are actually psychopaths, but most of them out there, if you gave them 
a cheese, a, a beautiful cheeseburger and fries and said, Hey, this would not affect there. There's literally no calories in here. They'd be like, I'm going to eat a hundred of those. Right. Just they, they're delicious. Right. But the difference between the average person and, and what you've discovered is the fact that, and maybe that goes back to addiction because it, you feel good as you're eating it, but you know, there's a long-term downside to it too. You know, I would love to eat a, a box of Oreos with milk every night. When I know that's not going to be good for my health, but I'm certainly going to enjoy it while it's happening. Yeah, a hundred, hundred percent. And the thing that does come from from addiction and from recovery is the ability to play the tape through, right? Like in in moments of weakness where I feel incredibly anxious, and like there's one time in the last eleven years that I've been close to having a drink, and I took a. I live in northern Michigan, so we're not close to an airport, but there's a tiny airport here in town. You could take a Cessna to Chicago, so I took that Cessna, and I'm scared of flying, and I had a panic attack the whole way there. And when I got there, I was so jacked up, I was like ready to drink, and but I was able to play the tape through. This is a this is a, a short term fix, right? This will make me feel good for the moment, but after that passes, this will still be here. It doesn't make my problems go away, right? It's a band aid, and so for me, the food is the same way. Like I have a craving for this right now, and I'll eat it, and it'll give me thirty seconds of mouth pleasure, like your boy Joe Rogan says. But after that, I'm still gonna I'm st- I'm gonna have to live with it, right? And I know what the long term effects of it are, and I know that it's just a band aid. It's funny. It's, so it's funny that you mentioned, you know, your girlfriend, now wife at the time, waking up early, getting out the door and and going to her job because so 2015, I proposed to my wife and I was looking at the pictures of the proposal. And I'm like, dude, you are you're big. You got to do something about that because I know what's going to happen. All of a sudden, you're not going to lose the weight and then you're going to hate every single one of your engagement photos. You're going to hate every single one of your wedding photos. And she's going to want to put them all up all over the house and you're just going to be upset having to look at your fat ass, right? So one of the things I noticed also was she would leave at like 5.30 in the morning and go to the gym before she went to work. And then on certain days, this fucking psychopath, and she watches this show, so she knows I'm going to say that, would go to a Pilates class after work, like two or three times a week. And I'm sitting there and I'm waking up and just going straight to the office. I'm going to lunch for an hour and a half, maybe having a drink at lunch. And I'm coming home and I'm going and smoking weed with my friends while she's at fucking Pilates. And I had that same realization at the time where I'm like, okay, she can do this. And you're just sitting on your ass. Why can't you do it? And it's almost like that competitive part of you comes out. And I'm like, and I started going to the gym and I actually ended up losing like 75 pounds before the wedding. I went from like 280 something all the way down to almost 200. Now I've gotten back up a little bit since I've had kids, but that lasted with me for like six, seven years where it was just the discipline because I saw her doing it. Once we've had kids, we both, you know, had to figure out the schedule and everything else to get back on it. But yeah, man, it, it's seeing someone and having and them having that influence on your life, I think, is very powerful. And when you were talking about that, that resonated with me so much because I had the sales job. I had the cushy job. You know, I was making good money. I was supporting her, but there was no structure to my life. And that was one of the things that she taught me was to be able to structure it. And I think the one message that a lot of people don't talk about it's not waking up early that gives you the power is giving yourself more time in your day so you can accomplish the things that you need to accomplish. At the end of the day, we all have to work a lot. 
you know, some of us are lucky. They do really well. Maybe they can get away with 20, 30 hours a week. The average person works 40. I'd say in the cannabis space, we're working 50, 60 plus. That's not going away. We all have to survive. That's the society that we live in. The only way to be able to accomplish more is by giving yourself more time in the day. Like, you know, and I would say the majority of us would not do it at night. Like, that's one thing that I've learned about myself. I have a much higher hit rate of being successful in working out if I do it before I do everything else because my mind isn't tired. I may not be physically tired at the end of the day, but my mind is tired and it's telling my body that it's tired, right? Because I've been eight, nine o'clock at night. I can go to the gym. I can get a great workout, but it's that mind. That's when the mind's stronger and saying, hey, man, you had a rough day. Take it easy. But if I get after it first thing in the morning, that kind of triggers the whole day. I'm in a better mood. And I'm and I don't know if most people are like this, but I am. If I work out, dieting is exponentially easier because I kind of did the thing. And then my mind's like, no, don't eat that. Don't eat that. You worked out this morning. If I don't work out, it's kind of the opposite where it's like, ah, we'll eat this stuff. You're not really working out. So it, it's weird. Yeah, 100%. I'm down 100 pounds. So like when I got sober, I was I was 300 pounds. I'm like just above 200 right now. Um and it's been a long, long road for me, too. And you're absolutely right about and I and I think I post about this before. It's like, you know, I get up at 345. I take a, you know, an ice bath and I go to the gym. But it's not about. Out, those yeah, I watch you doing that others. outdoors in Michigan in the winter. That's not an ice bath. That's just a bath, my friend. It happens to be. A <laughs> That's right. It was a cheap ice bath. I didn't have to pay for it because the yeah. mother nature was handling it for me. Sorry, um, go on. No, but it's it's like it's not about the like the actions, right? Like people say, like, oh, you don't have to take an ice bath to be successful. Like, absolutely no, you do not. But you like for me, I have to have some habits and I have to have some discipline. And I am a morning person, right? Like I wrote a book between the hours of four and six a.m. last year. That was a thing that I was able to do. And I, I coach some guys and they say, like, do I really have to wake up at four o'clock in the morning? Like, it just depends on you. Like, if you're there are people who are night owls, right? Like, if you're super productive, if you're the most clear at night, then then don't wake up early in the morning. Like, you know, that's your body schedule. But for me, this is what works for me. It's waking up early in the morning, having a regimented schedule, working out. And that puts my day, sets it up on a really good note, right? Like when I wake up. I'm the same low energy motherfucker that everybody else is. But when I come out, out of the gym, I feel like, yeah, like, let's fucking go. I'm ready for this day. You know, there, there's something and I hope people don't take this the wrong way about starting your day selfishly focused on you. There's something about that. Whereas if I wake up when my kids wake up and I'm just getting out of bed, brushing my teeth and going right into parenting and dealing with everybody else, like it's more exhausting. But when I have an hour, two hours, three hours to myself to do a couple of things that I need to do. Even if it's sometimes just waking up and like going upstairs going outside and just going for a quick walk. Like it's a world of difference that I just got to kind of like wake up on my own terms and ease into my day. Ver even if I don't get the workout in or anything else versus just waking up and going right into the shit of your day. And I'm not saying that hanging out with my kids is shit, but like you're a parent of young kids, you know, they're constantly asking for stuff and everything else. Like we love them and everything else, but there's a lot of sensory overload there too. And then having to deal with work, like you just, you literally wake up and you start your day, even though some of it's positive stress with stress. And then all of a sudden the stress goes away and it's like, 
it's like you've been running on the treadmill all day and like it's like all right let me get off and sit down and relax first waking up nothing being stressed yet except maybe some of your thoughts and then waiting and delaying that stress for like two, three hours and accomplishing something for you. There's just something magical about that, that changes your outlook. Like, and I agree with you because there are certain things with me, like if it's a physical activity, it's got to be done before my day starts. So working out things of that nature, if I want to do something creative, like if I have to come up with a new PowerPoint or a new idea or something, my, my, my free flow zone or whatever you want to call it is like between 11 and 2 a.m. Like there are certain nights where I just stay up after my family and I get into this like, and I don't know if I'm getting delirious because I'm tired, but I get into this creative state. So now like I've come to the point where I could recognize if there's something I need to do when it should be done too. And that, that I think is powerful as well. Yeah, absolutely powerful. Uh, I mean, my son is 17 months old. I'm just within the last few weeks have gotten back to the point where my wife and I have a schedule and he's sleeping through the night and I can go work out at five o'clock in the morning. But before that, it was, you know, I was I was doing stuff at home and then I'd have to work out later on in the day. So I'm, I'm really grateful that he is sleeping through the night and I can work out in the morning. The kids make it a challenge, man. So I have a two year old or two, wow, I am completely off. I have a three and a half year old and I have a two year old. Oh, wait, I was right. OK, yeah, I just got him backwards. Three and a half year old and a two year old. Uh, probably three and three quarters at this. So I know exactly what you're talking about, man. It's uh, you think you have everything under control. You have the schedule. You have it regimented. And then the kid says, fuck your schedule. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, my wife was staying home with the kid and I'm trying, you know, she's doing the late night thing because I'm going to work. And so I'm trying to, uh, you know, take care of things in the in the early morning. And that was that was my role. I'm up then anyways. Um so I'm glad that we're moving through the phases to where I can get back to doing Cause for me, it's like, I can't tell you how important it is for my mental health overall, just to have that routine back and the exercise. Uh, it's, it's fucking crucial. It, I agree, man. I am someone who has fought structure my whole life. I like having freedom. I like being able to do things when I want to do them, but there is a power to a structure and a routine. And if you look at anybody who's successful, I would say the vast majority of successful people have structure and have routines. And here's the secret about it, folks. We talk about discipline. We talk about holding yourself accountable. You can break your own rules every so often too. There's nothing wrong with living life. I think it all goes back to the 80-20 rule, right? You want to have that discipline and structure, but if all of a sudden an opportunity to you know, go to a sit court site at a basketball game comes up or to, you know, stay out late and miss your workout the next day, like try like hell. And it's funny. I used to think, so when I first started going on a diet working out, I used to take everything day by day where in the past, it's like all of a sudden, like Thursday, you fuck up. It's like, I'll start over again on Monday. I'm like, well, that's not good. So if I fucked up on Thursday, I started over on Friday. Right. And I thought that was more powerful. Um, I don't know if you know Rosie Matteo from Manio Communications. She's a you know a hell, very extremely disciplined, and she posted something the other day where it's like, look at your day like a sports game. There's four quarters in a game. If you fuck up in the first half, you're not gonna you're gonna try to come hard in the second half, right? So if all of a sudden I have a shit breakfast, I'm not gonna be like, oh okay, well you know I ate like shit today, so I'll start again tomorrow. It's like, all right, we'll clean up lunch and dinner. Like there's still the rest of the day. Why would you give up your entire day just because you fucked up once? And I think. You know, a lot of people are good about feeling bad about themselves and giving that excuse to fuck up more. But if we just like, if you fuck up, it's okay. Just fix it. Just 
fix it that day, fix it then, fix it in that next hour. If you have a bad hour, try making the next hour better. And if we can look and compartmentalize and saying, just because I fucked up, doesn't mean I ruined this whole next period of time. You know, I think we can solve a lot of the world's problems that way. But if people started just like breaking it down that way, I think we'd end up having more people that were similar to you. Like, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. And I don't mean this in a negative way. Like, you're not a, you're not a superhero. You're a normal dude. You just figured it out. Yeah, I, I struggle. I mean, shit, I'm a, I'm about as far from a superhero as because I struggle immensely with everything. I just don't quit you know i mean think about it took me years to get sober and i look at i look at you know getting off drugs and getting healthy is very similar right it's like constantly trying to quit taking drugs and relapsing and and starting over again and dusting your getting up dusting yourself off feeling embarrassed but you know getting back into it so like my life the last you know 15 years of my life has been like nothing but making mistakes, fucking up, getting up, dusting myself off and starting right back over again. Uh, If I do anything well, it's that. Dude, I love this conversation. I know we haven't talked about left coast that much, but like you're, you're inspirational to me. And I I love hearing the story. And, you know, one of the things that I think is really cool about you is the information that you're putting on LinkedIn and social media, because like we just mentioned it, you, you have a company, you have a few companies, you do stuff that make you money right to me building that personal brand is not always about the money but just putting that information out there and i think the content that you're putting out on linkedin i, I hope it does affect people because you know I'll, i i look at people like you the exact same way every time and i'll be the first person to admit it i look at it i go ah fuck this i don't want to listen to this guy and then i read a couple and i'm like god damn he makes a good point and then all of a sudden the next one i'm like all right i like this guy and i start following you Every time, all the people that I like the most that I follow in the world, I've hated when I first saw their posts because it's just like, it's like you read it and it's like, yeah, I probably should be thinking that way, but I don't want to hear it from him. And then all of a sudden they make a good point. You're like, all right, he's right. I'm going to follow him. No, I, I totally feel you. Um, And I've only, st- I started putting out content like last October and a lot of it's got to do with, so I overdosed a couple times. I have evaded more cases than I can count. Like there's, I I've always felt like, like I was saved for some reason, right? There are a lot of people, a lot less fortunate than me who are gone. Friends of mine who didn't make it just didn't wake up. And uh, so I've always felt like there was a bigger purpose. And it's like being a contractor and making money, that's not a bigger purpose. Like, okay, you built people shit, but that's, that's not a bigger purpose. Like growing weed, I see a bigger purpose but this like putting out content is starting to feel like, you know, I have some serious life experience that might help people. And that's really what I'm trying to get across is like, Hey, you don't have to come from money to start a business. You don't have to have a college degree to start a business. You don't have to be anything to be successful. Like this is America. You can literally do anything that you want. We can, we can bust through barriers and boundaries here and do crazy shit if you have some focus and some resiliency and you're willing to put in the work. Yeah, man. It, it's funny. I, um, I have a, a brother-in-law who, when I met him, he was nine. Um, he's 19 now. So I've known him for 10 years. And one of the things I've always been adamant about when I talk to him about life, when I talk to him about his future is sharing my fuck ups with him. 
you know, because I don't think his dad does it. I don't think my, I have two other brother-in-laws that are closer in age to me that are, you know, obviously in their professional life. And I don't think any of them do that. I think they just kind of tell him what to do and what he should focus on. But I remember no one shared their, like my dad never shared his fuck ups with me. My dad kind of gave, I don't want to say he told me he was perfect. He didn't tell me he was perfect, but like it was only, I only saw the successes or the positives. And like, you know, I knew that we had the things that we needed, but I know that my dad, like looking back on life, I can tell different points in our life where my dad wasn't doing as well. And I wish at some point he had shared those with me because when you go through it yourself, and that's what I'm trying to do for my brother-in-law, when you go through it yourself, it's like, I don't want to see. Yeah. You feel better about it where you're like, this is just a setback instead of, Oh my God, my world is falling apart. So to you, to your point, exactly. Like that's one of the things that I tried to do for him. Like even, you know, I, I got let go from a company that I co-founded and, and you know, I, I shared that with him and I said, you know, I thought this was my ticket. I thought this was the end of the road for me. And like, this was the big success and it wasn't. And like, it's not stopping me right now. It stopped me for a little bit, but it's not going to continue to stop me. So, you know, it's always interested in that, right? I think the more and more that people share the realness of their lives and their fuck ups and everything else, the better society would be as a whole, because we have this and you see it in the news now, we don't have to get political. Um, for some reason, my camera is getting choppy, but we'll ignore that. But, you know, Everybody wants you to be perfect. Nobody's allowed to have demons. No one's allowed to have skeletons. And, you know, people are being persecuted for shit they did 10 years ago, which is crazy to me, right? I think the more and more we're honest about who we are as people, the better our society would be. I I couldn't agree with you more. And one of the things that, you know, I've been involved in the personal development space for a while. Um, I do masterminds. I follow all these people. And... Um, you know, one of the things that kind of pissed me off is like, you know, if you look at these influencers on Instagram, for instance, like I put out content on Instagram and YouTube too, and you see these guys in Rolls Royces and jets and fucking islands and all this crazy shit. And you live in a fucking apartment in Oakland. Like, how is that? That's not really inspiring. That's so out of reach, you know, and they don't talk about like the 15 failed companies that they had before this one took off, you know? And so like everything that I talk about comes from my failures, right? I don't really like, I'll talk about success a little bit, but like every lesson that I have learned, every good lesson that I have learned in my life comes from a failure. No shit. Wes Watson follows you. That's awesome. Yeah. So I, I've, I've worked with Wes, um, and and a couple other guys, Wes kind of helped me get into a little shape too. Cool, man. Yeah, no, it's uh, I, I discovered him on Fighter and the Kid, and you know, I like some right. of his. Me- I'm not, I'm not, I I know he does a lot of things you just talked about, but I like a lot of his messages too, and I I love the story there. Um, listen, man, I've taken you probably ten minutes over the time that I asked you for. Let's, you know, let's, let's sum it up. Let's tell people about the company where they can find your products and really where they can find you, man. I love your story. I think it's inspiring. And and I definitely, you know, I'm I'm trying to come up to Michigan. I'd love to sit down and do this in person sometime. Yeah, bro. Come up to Michigan anytime. You're more than welcome. Uh, My name is Willie McKenzie. I'm co-founder and CEO of Left Coast Holdings. We're based in Michigan. You can find our products in all the heritage provisioning stores and a bunch of other stores throughout Michigan. I'm Willie McKenzie official on Instagram and Willie McKenzie on YouTube. Dude, thank you so much for doing this and sharing your story, man. I, I really appreciate it. Absolutely, bro. This is a lot of fun. I appreciate your time. Thank you for Absolutely. having me on.
And thank you to everybody at home for watching. This has been another very inspiring episode of Elevate Your Grind. Of course, if you missed any part of this episode and you like to watch it, you can check it out on youtube.com slash Elevate Your Grind or on Apple or Spotify podcast. Just search for Elevate Your Grind. Check out all things C-Lab at joincelab.com, folks. We'll see you next time.